Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Good morning, Journey South Bay. All right, my name's Sean McGaw, and my wife and I head up small group ministries here. And though it's not typical, I have asked Pastor Alex if I can make a couple comments before the scripture reading here this morning. And uh, the reason I I asked is because this particular uh, portion of scripture, Ephesians 4, specifically Ephesians 4.29, is my, like, foundational verse for small group ministries. And as we read it here this morning, and as you'll see, you know, in this short verse encapsulates how we are supposed to deal with each other, not just as Christians, but as people. And you use this verse, and if you... If you um, look at all your relationships, all your dealings with other people, and view it through this lens, you'll see the Spirit of Christ come through it. And so with that, you'll see uh, Paul uh, records here not just how to deal or how to speak to other people, but why it's important. So with that, uh, if you can, please rise uh, for the reading of the gospel. I'll read a scripture. So it says Ephesians 4, 29, or Ephesians 4, starting at verse 25 and going to verse 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let your son go down on anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Thank you. We've been going through the um, uh, latter half of the book of Ephesians, trying to understand what it means to be a part of a church, try to understand our role, what it looks like to be a part of a community. And and what these texts are sort of doing for us is, is showing us how a church is formed, uh, how a community comes together and it becomes not just a, people, a group of people who are socially together or together for a hobby, but what makes them truly a church? And uh, how do you know that Christ is alive in that church? And, and uh, the answer that you get from this text is you know that it's truly a church and that Christ is alive when people start becoming new. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, has a chapter called uh, Nice People or New Men. And what he does in the chapter is, is he goes after a very fair objection and question about Christianity that goes like this. It's, it says, look, if Christianity were true, then how come there are so many jerks in the church? Or the other part of that question is, if Christianity was so great, why, why aren't all of the Christians nicer than people who don't believe? And what Lewis says in the chapter is, is he says, look, 
if you meet somebody who claims to be a Christian and nothing ever happens in their life and nothing ever changes, it's very possible they were around Christianity and uh, they talked about it, but they were never truly converted. But he says one of the major mistakes that we all make is uh, connecting or over-connecting when he says uh, that Christianity is just simply good behavior. Because he says, actually, what the point is and, and how it should look is it's not about just good behavior. It's not about just being nice. It's about being transformed and changing. He says, actually, if you put somebody who believes against somebody who, not, who doesn't believe on the trajectory of their life, and life is going on for thousands and millions of years, he says, imagine it this way. Imagine somebody who is uh, not a believer just has a naturally uh, nice temperament that's way more cordial, way more socially acceptable, way nicer to be around, and they just have been circumstantially given to something like this. And somebody who uh, claims to be a Christian is over here, and they're just so difficult to be with, and, and, and they, you can't imagine being in a relationship with them, you don't know how to work with them, and you're like, how in the world do these people claim to believe and a God who is more powerful than this. And, and Lewis says, well, you know, they're going in different directions. Well, what happens if they go in different directions, not just for the next six months, but for uh, millions of years? He says the, the change will be enormous because what makes Christianity Christian is not people being nice or just socially cordial. It's about being new. And it's about being transformed. And what Paul gives us in this text is actually a glimpse of what that looks like. What does it look like to be new? What does it look like to be transformed? And so he gives you, he's going to give it to you in three headings, three things you've got to understand and consider, especially for us understanding what it means to be a part of a community that is aiming for people to be new. It's, one, the activity of the new life, Two, the incredible danger if we don't have that activity. And three, how you can actually grow into the activity of the new life. First, the activity of the new life. Uh, the first verse that Paul gives us, he, uh, he says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. This language, having put away, this is the same Greek, Greek word, uh, apothes, that he was uh, speaking about in the previous section, when he talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self, which tells us he's continuing his discussion about the new self. And when he talks about the new self, what you need to understand is, is this is way more deeper than just a private spiritual renewal. Uh, this is something that Paul talks about all throughout his letters that he's drawing on here when he speaks of this language of the old and the new. He's not just talking about something that personally happens to you. He's talking about the order of the world. That is, when the world was created, it was created good. It was created for people to be in harmony in relationships, loving, giving, self-sacrificing. But when the fall happened, what, hap what it did is it set like an earthquake of brokenness across every part of sphere of life so that the normal inclinations the way we would naturally think about making it in the world and succeeding 
looks like strategies of bitterness, stepping on people, going behind their back, looking out for yourself, making sure that nobody takes advantage of you, doing whatever it takes to get out in front of other people. And that's how life works. And Paul says that's the old way that was ushered in the fall. But when Jesus came and he died and he rose again, he talks about this language of new, of new creation. That is what God did in Christ is he didn't just make you new, he's making the world, he's making society, he's making a whole new possibility and he's taking heaven, what it will be like when you are in the presence of God and people are living the way that God designed it and it's breaking in in little ways in our experience now through the ministry of the church. And you know what? When it, you know what it looks like for heaven to break in? It's actually very practical. Because the examples he gives you of, of, of what it looks like for heaven to break into your life are your words, your work, and your relationships. Let me show you what he means. Your words, he says this in verse 25. No more lying. Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That word lying is, is the Greek word pseudos. You can see where he's going with this. It, it's not just a blatant, obvious lie. It's anything that's an aversion of the truth. Anything that is 97% true. He's saying no more of that. No more, no more exaggerations, no more spinning things, no more leaving out details that give you the advantage. Do not speak this way, but speak the truth. In verse 29, he says, uh, let no, let, uh, Sean just talked about this, no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The language there for corrupting talk, it, it's uh, the Greek word sapros. It literally means it, it's a rotten, it's used of a rotten tree or rotten fruit. It is evil talk and corrupting talk. It, it is sour talk. So when you speak this way to somebody, it's like handing them a piece of rotten fruit that what your language will do to them is the same thing that a piece of rotten fruit would do to their physical envelope. That's what you do to their soul. And what Paul says is when the new life breaks in, you actually reverse that. And you don't speak words that are, are, are versions of the truth or corrupting and, and hurting people's souls. But he says words for building up. And the language there for building up it, it, it is a, a word that would have been used for building somebody's house. The, the image looks like this. Have your words be things in people's lives. They don't break glass. They don't tear down roofs. They help build new rooms on people's houses. And, and what the principle here that you're seeing is that there are, there's no such thing as neutral words. Do you know this? There's no just casual words. Words are either tearing down or building up. Uh, Proverbs uh, 12, 18, it says this, reckless words pierce like a sword but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Do you know how God created the world? It says this, and God said, let there be light. Every day begins like this, God said, and there was creation. And you know what Paul is saying here about heaven? 
is that when you become a Christian and the new life begins to break in, you begin to participate in not the creation, but the recreation of this world through your words. That when you begin to speak words that are, out, that are shaped by Christ and who he has been in your life, and you're building back up, you are participating in the same exact thing through Christ that God did at the beginning of the world. It breaks in through your words, but it also breaks through in your work. Look in verse 28, he says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, there is not enough time uh, to give uh, to this topic of work. In fact, we should do probably an entire sermon on that, but two comments about this. Most Christians do not know how to connect their faith to their work. And it's because we are so entrenched in a secular society. And what that we end up doing is, is it ends up making our, either our work really boring or our faith really boring. Because the ancient Greeks, what they taught and believed about work is, is that the reason the gods created humanity was that so that they could do all the work. That is, work itself is a curse. It's a terrible thing to experience. It's part of the fallen nature of humanity, and it's something we just have to put up with because this world is dark and broken. But when you begin to read the beginning of the Bible, you get an incredible apologetic to that because what it says at the beginning is the creator of the world worked. He got his hands dirty. He began to make creation. He began to be involved in cultivating it. And when he creates Adam in the beginning of the garden, and puts him there. He doesn't say, Adam, please go write me some hymns or begin to develop Bible studies. And Adam says, you know, hey, well, what about that pretty garden over there? Don't worry about that. That's not important. Get to the spiritual things. No, there is no divide of the secular and the sacred in the beginning of the garden. He just says, tend and take care of this garden. And you get at the beginning of the Bible that work is an inherently good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And what Paul is doing here is he's beginning to put how heaven comes back and uses your work to reshape this world. Have you ever thought about this? That whatever job that you have is an opportunity to usher heaven in more and more each day in this life. Look, when he says no longer steal, but do something useful with your own hands. Here's what he's saying. When the new life breaks in in your life, it teaches your eyes and your heart to stop looking at your job as an opportunity to get something, and rather an opportunity to give something. Look, you don't have to be in ministry to be a part of what God is doing in this world through your job. What you need is a perspective that God has given you these gifts, this opportunity, this window to join in what he is doing, healing the world through his kingdom in this particular vocation by you saying, I exist to make this world better and to lay my life down and to do anything I can to make this company better, to do anything I can to be the best employee, to anything to say, this is not about me to be useful and not to take, to give, to serve, to love.
third example he gives is relationships. He says this in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Now, these words are drenched in profound teaching. Um, the word bitterness, uh, picaria, it, it's a sour spirit and sour speech. Aristotle, he called it an embittered and resentful spirit that refuses to be reconciled. A clamor, it, it, the Greek word krause, uh, it's somebody who, who quickly loses their temper, somebody who uh, immediately moves into shouts and shaming. Uh, slander, this is really profound, is the Greek word blasphemia. You can see where he goes with that. It, it's speaking behind somebody's back with the intentionality of tearing down their reputation. Malice, the Greek word kakia, it, it, it's ill will. It's wishing and hoping for the worst for somebody. It's hoping circumstances go awry. It's hoping they get found out. It's hoping they get humiliated. And Paul says when the new life breaks in your life, he flips it on the head. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Look, these things of bitterness and slander, you know what you're doing? When, when those are active in your life, What's going on is the people that you're frustrated with control you. They control your emotions. The reason you are, you are so locked in on seeing them fall and seeing something happen to them is because you're sure that if you can put them in the ground, if justice can come here, then you'll feel vindicated and then you will feel like life is okay. But the irony of that is that you are in prison by this person. And they control your emotions. But when the new life breaks in, what Paul is talking about in verse 32 is these, these people who have hurt you and frustrated you, they do not control your emotions, but God does. And what God will do is promise you justice for all of the broken things that ever happened in this world and tell you Jesus has paid for things and then set you free to be what he is like in this life to the people who have wronged you. Look, bitterness and anger and wrath and malice, it, it's been said, it, it's, it's like having undigested food sit in your stomach to ferment and to never pass through. Because what we feel like are people who have hurt us, who have crossed us. If we forgive them, we're letting them off the hook we're letting them think they're right in their own eyes. We're letting them think they're getting away with it. And there's nothing that will ever, ever be a dam, a road hen, nothing to guard them in and to make this world okay. And who can live in that world, we think? And so we're sure if we can have somebody, we can have a grudge, we can have somebody pay, that that will make the world right. But all it does is keep that undigested food dying in you inside, eating you alive. And what forgiveness is, is letting people off the hook who should probably never get off the hook. It's letting yourself off the hook by letting other people off the hook. And when you begin to do that, you know, you, when you begin to treat people 
in a way that they do not deserve to be treated because of the things that they have done, the things that they have wrong. You know what you're doing? Heaven is breaking in amongst you. What life will be like one day is beginning to creep in into this world. Now, these things that words work in relationships. Here's the melodic line through all of it. Your life is not your own. You are beginning to change, and the new life is beginning to break in with you. When you begin to realize your words, they're not yours. Even your job that you earned, that you had a resume for, is not your job. And this relationship, however personal and intimate it may be, like with your children, that you think this is biologically my child, even the new life says, this is not yours. But it now all belongs to God. It is now shaped by God and shaped by who he will be and who he is to you. And when you begin to treat all of those things in a whole new way and realize, I cannot put my hands tight on these things, that's when the new life is beginning to break in on you. That's the activity of the new life. Now, secondly, What's the danger if we do not have that? Because it's pretty severe. Look in verse 30. He says this at the end. The Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, quick theology lesson here. What Paul is doing is he is bracketing the entire Christian experience. He's saying one, the day of redemption, one day there will be a moment where you're finally in the presence of God. And when you are in his presence, you will, you, it will be so overwhelming. It will be so full of glory. It will take over all of your emotions. It will take over all of your actions. It will take all, over all of your purpose. It will influence every part of your life. And at the beginning, when you become a Christian and you, you join community, he says, you get a down deposit of that in the Holy Spirit. As you are sealed, it is your stamped for what is to come. And in between us being stamped and given the down deposit of what God will be like and when we're fully unleashed in his presence, he says, there is a warning. Do not grieve him. Now, what is this about? Look, three times in this short little passage, Paul uses this language of one another. Did you notice this in verse 25? For we are members of one another. Be, be kind to one another. Verse 32, forgiving one another. That is the, the horizon of formation. The vision of change and newness always is the context of community. And all of this is teaching us this, that, that what really kills the Holy Spirit are attacks internally in the body of Christ. Is when we lie to one another, when we slander one another, when we wish ill will on one another, when we grow bitterness in one another, John Stutt says we're stabbing at the very vitals of the body of Christ. And Paul says it grieves the Holy Spirit. The Greek word there is lipio. It means to cause sorrow. 
is what, what breaks the Holy Spirit's heart is not when we lose culture wars on sexuality. It's not when we half-heartedly sing worship songs. It's not even when we have an apathetic view of outreach. It's when we hate one another. And when we hate one another and we're stabbing holes in the body, you know what can creep in those holes? Is verse 27 says, the lies of Satan. See, the chief strategy of the devil, friends, it's not to get you to worship him. It's not to like throw out promises and, and hope that they are more powerful than God's promises. The chief strategy of the devil is to, to be way more cunning, to be way more deceptive. It's to come in and to separate the body of believers. Uh, there was a Marvel movie, like, uh, I think like seven or eight years ago, uh, uh, Captain America Civil War. And, and, and in the movie, what just happens is exactly as the title says. There's a, there's a civil war amongst uh, the Avengers with, um, with, with Captain America and with Iron Man and all of their friends, people who have worked together for the hope of the world, people who have worked together for the healing and for the peace of the nations are fighting internally. And what you learn later on in the movie is it all came out of this hurt man whose family had been tragically killed in something that the the Avengers had participated in, and he blamed them for that. And he wanted to get his own revenge. And here's what he said. He was a normal man. He said, I knew I couldn't kill them. More powerful men than me have tried. But if I could get them to kill each other, then I knew I could win. And that is the strategy of the devil. Look, the the devil knows the power of the gospel. He saw the power of the resurrection in utter frustration and fury. And he knows that Jesus says nothing can overcome the gates of the church. There is no power. But if he can divide us, that's his only hope. When Jesus is talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, in John chapter 16, he says, look, when my helper comes, here's what he will do. He will convict the world of sin. That is, he will show us how we are living in the old way. He will be a mirror to us. That is what the Holy Spirit does when he comes into a community. He is the nerve ending on the body of believers. And what's so dangerous is when we begin to turn on one another and to hate one another and to stab one another in the back and become apathetic to it. You know what we're doing is we're severing the nerve of the Holy Spirit. You know know what SIPA is? Um, congenial insensitivity to pain and ahidrosis. It's it's a hereditary disease where you lose the ability to feel pain. What Paul's warning here is, 
with the activity of the new life is that we can suppress it and walk away from it in such a way that we lose the ability to feel the pain of the old way of life and we sever the Spirit of God. He says, that's the danger if there's no activity of the new life happening in your community. He shows us the activity of the new life, the danger if we do not have it. But thirdly, how do we grow into it? How do we grow into the new life? Because once you hear that, what's the answer? Because <laughs> if it's about being nice and you hear that warning, you begin to sort of think maybe uh, we should just be very serious and take that warning and be very afraid and make sure everybody around me, everybody in my small group is really pushing towards the new way of life. But you know what? When he talks about this character formation, look, he's not saying be nice. He's saying be new. That is be alive. And no character formation came out of anything mechanical like shame or fear. If you want to be new, if you want to be alive, if you want to be active, and these things to grow deep down where no one can see them, but they're so real, they become alive in the coldest of moments. The only way to come alive is to meet something that is itself alive. Look, in verse 32, when Paul says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Look, this word, for be kind to one another. We need to, be ki- we need to be kind to the translators. But what they're saying here, be kind to one another, d- does not really get across what Paul is trying to communicate to us. Because the word for kind is this Greek word, krestos. It's only used by Paul. It- it's actually a really unique wordplay on another Greek word that you would be familiar with, Christos, which is the Greek word for Messiah assigned to who Jesus' title was. And what Paul means by it when he says be kind to one another is he's saying there, there is a kind of love out there in the world initiated by what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection that isn't just love that you think about, isn't just love that you've heard about, or write a poem about. It's love that's transforming. It's love when it comes into your life, it turns everything upside down, and it leaves you in a way that you can't go back to your life in a totally different way. One of the most profound places that Paul talks about this is in Romans 2.4. The verse says this, it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It is God's krestos that leads you to repentance. See, what what draws you to change, what draws you to repentance, it is not God's fear. It is not the fear of God's condemnation. It is not even God's holiness that leads you to change. What leads you to change is when you come into the presence of God and you know you should get shame and condemnation and punishment and he gives you the exact opposite. He gives you his crestos. He gives you his kindness. 
I think I've told you about my childhood friend Sam. But if you haven't heard, I'll tell you again. My friend Sam told me one time, this is how he learned to love his younger brother. He said when they were growing up, his younger brother had some, um, some mental, emotional handicap problems. And he, so he, it was an inconvenience, and he didn't like him very much. And when he was in junior high, he wanted to be popular, so he would pick on him as a way to impress the other boys. And one day, he stuffed him in a locker in the hallway at school and held it while his younger brother was beating on it, scared, begging to get out. And boys around him laughed and thought it was funny and cool until a teacher came and broke it up, sent him to the principal's office. The principal was furious, called his parents. They sent him home from school. When Sam came home, his father and his mother were waiting there for him in the kitchen, looked at him and said, go to your room. And Sam thought, oh boy, here it comes. He knew what he'd done. He knew what he deserved. He knew how his parents felt about him in that moment. So he goes to his room and waits for the condemnation, sitting there on his bed, wondering how bad this is going to be. About a half an hour later, his dad walked in, looked at him and put his head down, struggling to get words, and just looked up at Sam and said, I just want you to know one thing. Your little brother loves you very much. And Sam said, that's when I learned to love my brother. See, it is God's kindness that leads you to change. And Paul says, forgive one another just as God in Christ has been to you. The way that you get the new life it's not by trying harder. It's not by committing to be more passionate. It's by getting God's crestos, by getting his kindness so deep down in your soul that when somebody treats you poorly, when somebody gets ahead of you, when somebody comes out in front of you, it's almost like the instinct in your soul is to think, how did God treat me in this moment when I was like this to him? What did he say to me? How did he treat me? How did he think about me? And Paul says, that is how the gospel works. When God looked at you in your sin, in your rebellion, in you, the way that you hated him, he never said, when are you going to figure it out? He sent his son to forgive you on the cross. Has that gotten deep down in you? Has that gotten to the bottom of your soul so that when somebody steps out in front of you and you never want to let them get away with it, the love of the gospel can still bubble up? Have you ever experienced that? Look, if not, right now, I beg of you and invite you. In Christ, God will look at you not in any of the spiritual, religious, moral things that you bring to be nice for him. He will look at you with all your bitterness, all your malice, all your slander, all of your hatred and tell you one thing. I want you to know how much Jesus loves you. If you've never experienced that, consider that an invitation. Let me pray.
Father, we want this to be a place where we're not just nice, but we're new. Where you have met us and we are, we are renewed by your kind love. Lord, for anybody who's never experienced that, Lord, would you help, help show them yourself and the kindness of your love? And for those of us who are struggling with bitterness, who are struggling with malice, who are struggling with slander, who are struggling with the desire to forgive somebody that we don't like, help us to remember your Christos, your kindness, just as you did with us. Help us to embrace the new life in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.